What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 70 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we are all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today we are seeing signs of life again. You know, I don't know what part of the United States or the world that you're listening in at, but I'm not a winter fan. I don't like brown grass. I don't like leaves off trees. I don't like cold air and rain, incessant rain. And when I can see the beginnings of life, it makes me happy. We've got flowers in our islands that have begun to pop up, and you're like, oh, color. I think spring's coming. And then I got the great news on the drive-in from an appointment this morning that pitcher catchers were just reporting down to Florida and Arizona for major league teams. The grass is green. All the squads will be showing up here soon, and baseball season is just around the corner, which means warmer weather, which means sunshine, which means the crack of the bat, and there's nothing better to me than baseball. Love, love baseball. And I think part of it is I love the sport. The other part of it is I just know that summer's coming and I like the sun. Well, today, thinking about the coming of this new season upon us, I wanted to go back to one of the Major League Baseball all-time greats here in the city of Atlanta. You know, you think about the accolade somebody achieves on a field, but you forget about the person that achieves them and how much they are uh, more than just a player who slips on a glove and grabs a bat. But God created them uniquely and gave them incredible abilities on and off the field to be leaders. This gentleman I had the pleasure of meeting when I was a college student back at Liberty University. He had played there uh, prior to me getting there. I, I got the honor of playing with his brother, and so he would swing through town. And I didn't know him by any stretch, but knew all about him. And I know that everybody who I knew that knew him well thought the world of him. Well, in this episode of Lynch with a Leader, I get to sit down with one of my heroes, one of the guys that I got to watch play many, many times here in Atlanta and in Pittsburgh. His name is Sid Bream. Sid is an all-timer here in the city of Atlanta. But here's the other thing about Sid. He is an all-timer for the kingdom. His heart for this world, his heart for others, his heart for Jesus, I would dare say was bigger than his skill in the game of baseball. I am so excited about you listening in to my conversation with the one and only, the former first baseman of the Atlanta Braves, the guy who is known across the city as when Sid slid. Pull up a chair And listen in to my conversation with Sid Bring. Well, Sid, thank you so much for joining me as a guest today on Lynch with a Leader. It is a true honor to have you. Well, Mike, I mean, it's a pleasure to be with you as well and catch up on things and 
also just to share. So, I mean, thank you so much for having me. Well, man, you know, when you were growing up in Pennsylvania, Sid, did you ever dream that your life would turn out like it has married 30 plus years, four amazing kids, two grandchildren, a great career, two trips to the World Series, and now traveling the country and speaking? Did you ever dream that would even be on your uh, list of things you would do in life? Mike, I mean, in all reality, um, you know, I had no clue that I even was being looked at mm. uh, until my 12th grade year as far as baseball was concerned. Um, you know, I was just out there for the love of the game, playing, enjoying playing high school baseball and so on and so forth. And until you know, a scout came up to me and, and said that uh, they're thinking of drafting me for the night back then it what long time ago, but that was back in 1978. They were thinking about drafting me for the, the June draft. I mean, I, I didn't even have a clue. Wow. And, um, and so uh, obviously that did not happen at that point in time. But, you know, then for, from there to going to Liberty Baptist College back then, now Liberty University, uh, you know, and, and how my life has changed because of that. Uh, it has been an amazing ride. When you were growing up, how did your faith journey take root? So here you are growing up in a, in a little town in Pennsylvania, and you, you haven't stepped into Liberty yet. You haven't gone to Liberty Baptist College, which is a different world than the Liberty that, that I was just at last week. What, what was the precursor to all the faith beginning to move and work in your life? Well, Mike, I mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm so thankful that I had a mom and a dad. I had grandparents. I had uncles and aunts that uh, loved Jesus. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful, even though there were, there were times that I, I sat there and said to myself, you know, I don't have a testimony because, I mean, I was growing up in a, a home that, I mean, if you played, if you played with cards, you were evil, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, growing up in that situation, you know, and then, and then at, at 13 years old, giving my heart to Jesus Christ, uh, it was one of those ordeals where there wasn't a huge change. I mean, you know, as far as other than the fact that I knew Jesus Christ had come into my heart and he put it, I put my faith and trust in him there wasn't a huge change as far as my outward display because I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't cursing. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't smoking. You know, I didn't have to get released from anything. Mm. And so, I mean, there was no, there was, wasn't really like a freedom that, uh, you know, that God had uh, taken me from. And, uh, you know, so, and, and at the same time, you know, I did, I, 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 you know, went up through high school. I knew I was saved, but I'll just tell you, I just like so many of us and I, you know, and I do a lot of FCA events, Mike, and to see some of these kids that get up on stage and, and just proclaim their faith and, and, and their love for Jesus Christ. And, and it, it blows me away. That wasn't me, mm. even though I was a Christian, you know, that wasn't me. And, uh, and I wasn't growing a whole lot because I didn't have a whole lot of mentoring other than my parents. I mean, my dad was working all the time. My mom, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of mentoring. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was growing a whole lot in my faith. 
until I got to Liberty Baptist College and, and uh, was under the tutelage of not only the great professors, but also Coach Worthington at Liberty. So how did you end up at Liberty of all? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like Lynchburg was a big old spot on the map back then or they had billboards anywhere. How in the world did you end up there? Well, you know, it's a funny story that our youth group from my church went down to Liberty in 1973. The year that I got saved in 1973, we went down to Liberty. And at that time, it was just the housing right across from Thomas Road Baptist Church. And I swore at that time, I will never, <laughs> ever go to Liberty Baptist College. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the reality of things was, you know, like I said, after my high school uh, graduation, going into the June draft, I thought that I was going to be drafted. And I mean, and I really and truly didn't put any stock in college. I wasn't even thinking of college. And I'm so thankful that I had a counselor in school that, uh, you know, said, hey, what if what if it doesn't happen? What if you what if you don't get drafted? I mean, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And uh, so, you know, through their their efforts, they got me to do the SATs. I did get drafted. And, uh, you know, and at that point in time, I had I had nowhere I was going. Wow. Temple University. And Liberty University, uh, Liberty Baptist College back then, Coach Worthington, they both called me up after the draft and said, we would like you to come play baseball with us. And I mean, and other than the baseball, that was the farthest thing that I wanted to be thinking about going back to school because I was not a great student for, and, uh, but the reason that I chose Liberty was, is because you know, coming from the situation I was in, we, you know, middle-class family didn't have a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and at that point in time, what took place is Liberty Baptist college was giving me a full scholarship that paid for everything. Wow. And Temple university gave me a full scholarship, but their full scholarship was only tuition and books and not room and board. And, uh, and so I went to Liberty. And uh, not knowing what was coming up and, and uh, so thankful that God protected me from not going into baseball. Because like I said, I was not the strongest Christian. And to get into the game at a, at a young age, not knowing what was going on, who knows where I ended up. Mm -hmm. you, you show up at Liberty and you meet Al Worthington. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say probably in my journey in life, probably top 10 influences. He was just our pitching guy. He was your head coach. He was our pitching coach. But those times with Coach Worthington, I can still recount things he said. I still remember the, the way he taught us about more than the game of baseball, the game of life. What was it about Coach Worthington that made him such a huge, not only influence on you, but, but such a great coach? You guys had some incredible teams back then. What was it about Coach Worthington that stood out to you? Well, I mean, I don't know if, you know, the, your viewers remember the, the, the commercial E.F. Hutton. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, E.F. Hutton was, you know, when people speak, you listen. When E.F. When e. Hutton talks, you listen. And Coach Worthington was just a, a world of wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when, when, when Coach Worthington spoke, uh, you knew you you knew that whatever was coming out of his mouth was going to be golden, and uh, not only did he prepare me for professional baseball, 
but he also prepared me not, you know, for my spiritual walk, mm-hmm. but also he also, you know, they, he taught, you know, each person there about how to take care of a lady, treat a lady. I mean, make sure you're opening doors for people, you know, your, your girl, make sure that you're, you know, doing the things necessary to show her that you respect her and honor her. And, and, uh, you know, he, 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 he covered all gamuts as far as your life while you were at Liberty. But, uh, he was just, he was, like I said, he was just one of those that when he spoke, I mean, he just wanted to listen because I mean, there was just a wealth of wisdom coming from his mouth. It was funny. We were talking, I was talking to a mutual friend of mine when he was here in Atlanta, Randy Tomlin, a good friend of yours. And Randy said, I remember one of my first outings in the bigs. I'm standing out on the mound in a, in a major league stadium and I close my eyes and I can hear coach Worthington in my ears going, Randy, lower and slower. <laughs> and he said, I still remember. And, and we all do. There are those, those, character lessons he would talk about guys with character always walk on the inside or walk always walk on the outside let the ladies walk on the inside you know, just those smallest they always walk on the sidewalk they don't cut through grass that's why you have sidewalks and you don't think about it then but it marks you absolutely if if you hadn't have played for a coach like that mm. what do you think would have been different about your life I mean, number one, just being at Liberty Baptist College and the professors and, and you know, the umbrella that was put over top of you, uh, being at Liberty Baptist College with Dr. Fall and all the great professors and everything that were there, along with Coach Worthington, you know, they, they modeled my faith. Mm. Um, you know, they, 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 you know, showed me what a Christian is supposed to be like. And uh, if I would not have been there, like I said, just a little earlier, if I would not have been to Liberty Baptist College back then, Lord knows where I'd be. Mm. I mean, you know, would I have gone down the path of, of uh, just getting into everything and making my life a mess? I don't know. Uh, I'm hoping, you know, God chastens the ones he loves. So I'm hoping that he would have pulled me back in. But, you know, I don't know where I'd have been because I wasn't a strong Christian back then as far as, like I said, I would, I, I had the outside part of it, Yep. but I didn't have that inside push. Well, that's so good. That is, a, and it's so funny. You think back to, to the teenager in Pennsylvania going, I will never go to Liberty. And now you've had, you've had your entire family has gone there. Haven't they? We've had we've had 19 dreams <laughs> go to Liberty since I was there back in 1978 through 1981. I love that. Uh, it's like God said, OK, all right, that's what you think. We'll, we'll see how that turns out for you. And uh, man, it, the influence that school has had. And I took my I was telling you earlier, I took my team back up there from North Star last week. And I always go up to where they've got Doc buried up there and read those quotes around that wall. And I remember all of them, like they were said yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that place, it leaves a mark on you. It yeah. does leave a mark on you, for sure. Absolutely. So you get you you spend your time at Liberty, set tons of records while you're at Liberty. You're, you're iconic there. And then you get... Now, now just, under, just understand this, Mike. I mean, the school had only been in existence for six years, so the records, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of back, back along as far as... It doesn't, it doesn't matter. There were still records. That was the great part. There were still records. I set records, Sid, and there were none that anybody ever wanted to remember. That was the bad part about it. So you you get done at Liberty, and you get drafted by the Dodgers, and you begin the life in minor league baseball. 
What were those early years leaving Little Lynchburg, Virginia, and Pennsylvania? Now you're in the Dodgers organization. What was that process like walking through the minor leagues? Well, I would just say this. I was, uh, you know, growing up in a very, very small town where we had no stoplights mm. and getting out into the world. I mean, you know, the, the farthest we basically went away from our home was to, from Pennsylvania was to go down to the New Jersey shores from time to time. But most of, most of my life was in a, uh, an area of about 50 to 60 miles. Wow. And so now you're putting a young man that went to Liberty. And I mean, I can't tell you how, how tough it was going to Liberty and, and calling my mom up every day. And I, you know, I don't want to be here. I mean, I'm, I'm mm. going home. I need to come home. I mean, I was, I was miserable. I mean, and to the point that if you remember that old baseball field, they had, they had the, the like the seating was grass. Yep. I mean, around that old baseball field. And uh, I walked, went out there one day and I was le- laying in the grass and they put some kind of a chemical in there that I just, I just broke out all over my body. I mean, and I, I just used that as a confirmation. Mom, <laughs> God doesn't want me here. There's plagues here. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I was a small town boy going mm. into, you know, in a big arena. And, uh, you know, and so the, the, the one thing that was great for me is, is the accountability that came from coming from Liberty Baptist College. Because every place that I went to, I started off in Vero Beach, Florida which was a single way for them. And then I went to double way in San Antonio. Then I went to Albuquerque, uh, which was triple way for them. But, and then, I, and then as I got to the big leagues, but every step that I took because of Liberty Baptist college, I was the chapel leader. Wow. I mean, as soon as I stepped in the door, you came from Liberty Baptist college. So you can understand the influence that Liberty had as far as what people saw. And so every place that I went to, I was a chapel leader. So that brought on me a, a source of accountability to make sure that I was doing, and I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that I was perfect by no means, but I mean, it brought on a source of accountability for me to uh, make sure that I was, I was trying to live my life to uh, help other people. Was it hard to continue to grow during that season when you were you know, you're bouncing level to level. I mean, at that point, it's not about teamwork now. It's about I'm striving to to get to the next level. Was it hard to keep your faith growing during that season? I mean, I would have to say, Mike, I mean, that there that was that was probably there. I mean, uh, you know, I obviously we had our chapels and we'd have Bible studies, uh, you know, throughout the minor leagues and so on and so forth when the when the chaplain would come in and uh, but you know, you didn't get a chance to go to church. Mm-hmm. You know, you go when you went to Double A San Antonio. Uh, you know, you went. They the Dodgers had a charter. I mean, they had their own bus in uh, in San Antonio, and you know, and, and you know, guys. I mean, shoot, they put videos up on the screen that aren't good for you to be seen, and so it's it's hard to just keep doing this. Mm. Uh, and so you you know, you saw stuff that you shouldn't be seeing at times. And, and, you know, again, the, the flesh part of you, you, you see it. Um, but you know, so yes, there was a, there was a challenge on keeping my faith, but you know, I, I remember calling coach Worthington a lot. I remember 
trying to get around individuals that uh, could could help uh, strengthen me. And, uh, you know, and then in 1983, I mean, I finally got to the place where I, I married my wife. I mean, she was a strong influence. And and uh, so that that certainly helped quite a bit as well. Where did you and Michelle meet? At Liberty. Did you really? You know, and, and uh, Mike, I mean, I I went there. I mean, I was you, back then you had your Christian service. That's right. I mean, and my Christian service was. I swept basketball floors for the halftime of the basketball games. And so I don't, I, I had a friend of mine, Johnny Jarnigan, who was our catcher, uh, has gone on to do some, you know, coaching uh, for colleges and so on and so forth across the country. But Johnny and I were, were doing the uh, sweeping. And, uh, you know, I, I asked him to go over and, and ask my wife to be whether she'd go on a date with me. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> that's how bad I was. I mean, I, you know, I was very, I, I didn't have the confidence and so on and so forth. And so he went over and said, came back and he said, well, she said she would go with you if you go over and ask her. So with that, I went over and asked my wife to be whether or not she would go out on a date with me. And, uh, and so that's what started everything. And so 36 years later, going on 37, um, you know, my, my wife and I have been together. That's awesome. That is awesome. And, and for, for those guys in the minor leagues, and we've had so many of my friends, of course, from Liberty and just here in the Atlanta area, make it, those are, those are some tough seasons, man. When you're, those are some lonely, we see the bigs and see the, it looks fun in the bigs and it isn't all fun, but, but getting there is yeah. quite a process. Then you get traded to the Pirates. Did that hit you hard, leaving the Dodgers organization, going to the Pirates, or was that a, a positive because it was close to home? Well, it was a positive for two reasons. Number one, that part of it all, uh, you know, getting closer to home. But number two, I knew I wasn't going to play for the Dodgers because mm -hmm. Tommy Lasorda loved Greg Brock, the first yeah. baseman, and, and Al Campanas loved Franklin Stubbs, who played at Virginia Tech, that was coming right behind me. And I knew I wasn't going to play in, in uh, L.A. Mm. So I'm thankful that uh, in the in the human perspective that I had a the head of scouting, Ben Wade, you know, told uh, told the team not to bury me. And uh, they offered me for trade to get to, to Pittsburgh. Now, understanding that I, when I went over to Pittsburgh, a lot of individuals said, man, you got to be ticked off. I mean, you just came from a last a first place team to a last place team and. And, and in all reality, I said, no, my, I, my first goal was to get to the major leagues and it wasn't going to happen over there, even though I had some little stints and, you know, but I wasn't going to play in, 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 in LA. And so, uh, you know, coming back home where it was close enough to my parents that they could be there every so often, but far enough away, they could be there all the time. Yep. It was a great thing. Um, but at the same time, finally getting an opportunity to start to play in the big leagues and, and show people what I could do, uh, that, that was your goal. I mean, that, and, and it, you know, like I said, it wasn't going to happen with L.A. You know, you, you get to the Pirates, and the Pirates begin to turn the corner. I mean, you guys began to build a great club, and through the draft and through some, through some acquisitions they made, man, in 90, you guys, I believe, made the playoffs in 90, and then at the end of the year, you're a free agent and you, you start over again back in Atlanta because Atlanta was not a bustling club in 91. They were coming off the tank in 90. 
Um, was that was that hard leaving a winning organization close to home to come over with a team that was on the rebuild here in Atlanta? Mike, I mean, you know, I just got to set up the situation here. I mean, I you know, in 1990, after the season, after we lost to Cincinnati in the playoffs, the management for the Pittsburgh Pirates came out the very next day after we lost and said, Sid Bream's our first priority to sign for the 1991 season. So Michelle and I, we're, we're excited. We're happy. We're thinking we're going to get a multi-year contract to be in Pittsburgh and you know, we're going to, we're going to be able to, you know, establish ourselves here. And that was great. And, but throughout nego- negotiations, I mean, they didn't even get close to ballpark. I mean, um, market price on me, mm-hmm. let alone give me anything else. And so when the free agency came up and, and Atlanta gave me a great offer, they said, you need to make a decision, you know, today, because if you're not going to do it, we're going to go someplace else, which actually was, they were going to go after Franklin Stubbs. Wow. And so, uh, you know, so Michelle and I talked that night, made the decision to go to Atlanta. But I can tell you that, I mean, that whole night, I mean, the, 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 the truth of it all, the whole night, my wife and I cried in our bed. I bet. Thinking, you know, we're leaving Atlanta, uh, Pittsburgh to go to a last place team. You know, being here and, and we're sitting there thinking, you got to be kidding me. We're the first priority. And uh, so... So, you know, I don't want to make the story too long, but just the next morning as we woke up, I called Jim Leland, who was the manager of the yeah. Pirates, asked him whether or not, you know, I was bound to the contract. He said, you haven't put your name on it yet. So at that point in time, I proceeded to try and stay in Pittsburgh. And I called my agent and for an hour and a half, he tried to talk me out of what I was going to do. So after, after that hour and a half, he called to, the agent that was at the winter meetings or the free agency meetings and told him to go to the Pittsburgh pirates and also, and see if, if that was the best deal that they could give to us. And in the meantime, my agent that, that I spoke to called me back and said, well, what if, what if they uh, sign you and they trade you down to Atlanta? You're going to look like a fool. You're going to have this much. And I mean, and then you're going to go down to Atlanta and they're going to trade you and you're going to be stuck. And I said, great point. So let's go back to Pittsburgh and ask him for a no trade clause. And we went back to Pittsburgh and asked for a no trade clause. And they said no to a no trade clause. And I said, man, if I'm your first priority, I hate to see what your last one is. And so obviously, you know, the story, we went down to Atlanta with the great talent that they had there. And they brought in Terry Pendleton and, and Charlie, Charlie, um, uh, oh my Lee Brandt. Lee Brandt and, yep. you know, Raphael Belliard to shore up some things and myself and, and uh, through Terry and, you know, our leadership got those guys to start thinking win and things changed in one year. And I mean, it was a, just a phenomenal season. You know, as, as a resident in Atlanta back then, you know, the Braves have been bad for, I mean, I grew up in Atlanta, so, you know, they had their spots. They'd be good with Joe Torre one year, and then they're back bad again. But when Bobby moved from the front office to the dugout, and then the, all those changes happened there in 91, the offseason of the 91 season, uh, you know, that was the year I was getting married, and I remember the run started. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you could feel the excitement in the city following it. At any point in that, did you ever look at that and go, God, you really 
you really did know what you were doing. Were, were there moments that you said, I thought it was just all this other stuff, but man, God was at work the whole time to get me to an opportunity like this. Was that going through your mind then? I would have to say, Mike, I mean, that came later on, mm. uh, you know, later on. I mean, it started to occur to me. I mean, and it, and it, it occurred to me in the sense of the assistant GM at Pittsburgh went down to Atlanta and he was the one that put the name in John Sherholtz in order mm-hmm. to get him there. So, you know, how God was working behind the that. scenes in order to get all this, you know, going on. And again, you got to understand, I just came off a major knee injury. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1989, I mean, I, I tore my ACL, had five surgeries, uh, you know, going into the 19, well, four surgeries going into the 1991 season. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I was, you know, you're taking a, back then ACL surgery wasn't as uh, well-developed as it is now. And so you were taking a chance, I mean, on, on somebody that had a broke leg. That's right. Uh, you know, and so, you know, God had his hand and all that. And, and I'm again, looking back, uh, you know, it was one of those things that God had me down there because we started Bible studies for the guys. We started Bible studies for the, you know, couples. We started Bible studies for the ladies. I mean, and so God was just using us in order to be that conduit to, to get things moving, to help a guy like John Smoltz and Terry Pendleton and some of the others start to be introduced to, uh, you know, how they should be living for Christ. You know, there's nobody that lived in Atlanta during that time. And you're still, you're still a hero. I would say in Atlanta for what happened in 92, the night, the night, the ball, Francisco Cabrera hits it in left field. You score Sid's the Sid slid is still a famous saying around Atlanta. When you were laying set on the bottom of that pile, what in the world, was going through your brain that night? You know, in all truth, when I say all I can think of is I'm thank thank the Lord I was safe. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody you know, out of Atlanta I'm, probably I'm felt the same way. From being, I'm, I'm that far from being out and Bobby could be a goat. I mean, I, I could be <laughs> oh, a goat. Why in absolutely. the world did Bobby pinch run for me? Yep. Uh, you know, and, and he'll he'll tell you to this day and and uh that he had nobody to put at first base. Well that wasn't the case because uh, he had Brian Hunter that pinched hit that That's inning. Right. He had Francisco Cabrera yep. that, that got the big hit that uh, somebody else could have been out there. His big problem was if we tied the game is who was going to play second base because Mark Lemke was pinched hit for, mm. and we had nobody on the bench for him. Wow. So he could he could have literally brought a pitcher in that could have been in the dugout by the time that I got the home plate. And, uh, you know, the game could have been over, no excitement. But again, that's how God works. I mean, that's right. You know, using using a crippled down, broken down <laughs> old you know, uh, slow runner to make something exciting. That here it is, twenty seven years later. You know that uh, you know God's still using that play in order to allow me to share Jesus Christ. You, you know, you played you played for a great manager at Liberty and Al Worthington, and then you played for the great Jim Leland in Pittsburgh and for Bobby. What made, what made Bobby Cox a great, I mean, he's a hall of fame guy mm-hmm. and I've got so many of my friends were in and around the Braves at that time. What, what made Bobby so um, revered in the baseball circles as a player who played for him? What was that experience like? 
Bobby, I mean, Bobby demanded your 100% every day. If you gave it 100%, uh, you know, there wasn't anything that was going to come up as far as Bobby. Now, if, if you weren't producing, you know, obviously, then you were going to be, you know, sitting on the bench. But as long as you gave it 100%. But the other thing that Bobby allowed is he didn't micromanage the team. Mm. I mean, he allowed Terry Pendleton and myself to kind of take ownership and leader leadership of that team back in 1991 to start having team meetings without any coaches present wow. and start, start to, uh, you know, talk to the guys and, and uh, get their attention focused on what needed to take place in order for us to be a great team. And, uh, and that was a neat part of the 1991 season watching a team, you know, like I said, with David justice and Ronnie Gant and, you know, John Smoltz, Steve Avery, Tommy Glavin, and, you know, all the others, Mark Lemp, well, Jeff Treadway was on the team then. Yeah, but that's right. All the others, and watch their attitudes change throughout the course of the year to when they stepped between the lines, they knew they were going to win the ball game. Mm. Watch that, and then, as you said, watch a team or watch a city adopt us uh, was just a, uh, just an, a great experience for me and my you know, 10 full seasons of major league baseball. It, you think back on a lot of the players, you played with a lot of hall of famers. What, what were leadership attributes that not only you saw in the hall of fame players, but there were probably some players when you spoke of Jeff Treadway, a guy that may be forgotten by a lot of people, but an incredible guy on and off the field. What were some of the leadership traits that stood out to you while you played the game of baseball, when you looked into teammates' lives and even probably looking in the mirror in your, in your own life, what makes a great leader in the game of baseball? I, I, I think one of the greatest things, Mike, I mean, and I, for the most part, I'll share about Terry. Terry made some decisions uh, to do things that were unconventional. Mm. I mean, things that you, you wouldn't see uh an individual that was not secure in himself do. I mean, and, you know, and I'll share this in regards to one of the biggest things that I watched Terry do two things, you know, he's a batting champion in 1992 MVP, but I mean, you know, back then Terry Pendleton, I watched him numerous times with a guy on second base and nobody out when he, you know, he could have been going for his base hit. He could have been going for whatever, dropping a bunt down mm. to get the guy to third base and trusting the guy behind him to get that guy in. So you're bringing together a team in that regard. And then the other aspect that I saw Terry do was in Cincinnati that, um, you know, we had been getting several of our guys were getting plumped uh, quite a bit. And uh, Terry came into the dugout after one of our innings and, and said, if the next guy that comes up to the plate does not get hit, that's it. I mean, and so Marvin Freeman was the pitcher and Marvin Freeman went out onto the mound, didn't even get close to this, didn't even get close to hitting the guy through sliders actually. And at that point in time, Terry walked off the field, went up into the clubhouse and did come back down onto the field. And he, and he, and he showed the team, if you don't support us, we're not supporting you. Mm. And it made a huge, huge impact as far as pitching was concerned that you better 
take care of your hitters if you want us to do anything for you. And so, you know, unconventional. Mm -hmm. Whoever has walked off the field to tell their team, you better you better uh, buckle up here or uh, I'm not playing for you. And, uh, you know, yeah, he got he got some scorn from Bobby. He got some scorn from John Sherholtz, but it sent a huge, loud picture to the rest of the team. Boy, that's good. That is, I remember, I remember that because you know y'all were must see TV back then, yeah. and oh, every, yeah. everybody. I remember we got my wife and I got married. We met at Liberty, got married in '91, and all my wedding party were Liberty baseball guys. And and the biggest thing was, I think I'm gonna get married once in life. And the Braves may only make the World Series once in life when y'all are playing the Twins. I, I didn't know, I didn't know how that. I didn't know if I was gonna show up for my wedding that night. <laughs> but uh, to look at the run you guys had, and everybody remembers. The night you slid, everybody remembers the night. Phones well, ringing. Every, everybody, Mike, that is you know 20, 27 years or young, older now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But even the young ones, they see guy. The Braves play it all the time, and you hear Skip's yeah. call, and God, so good. But there was a part of your journey, and I was listening to the radio the night that it happened. The Braves acquire Fred McGriff mm -hmm. at the end of your time in Atlanta, and they had the fire in the stadium. And I remember that night, Fred hit hit two dingers, if I remember correctly, that night. But but after the first one, I remember the ball went out of the yard, and Skip Carey on the radio said, "Look who's standing." I wrote it down. Look who's standing at the top of the dugout steps to greet him, Sid Bream. Then he said, "Gosh, that just doesn't surprise me." I remember hearing that. And thinking that might be Sid's greatest mark was that selflessness that you showed with a guy who, for all intents and purposes, took your spot mm -hmm. on the field. Was that a conscious decision you made that night of how you were going to approach that? How, how did that play out, Sid? Mm -hmm. You know, Mike, I mean, I, you know, again, I think that's that was from, you know, my parents. Mm -hmm. That was from Coach Worthington. And, and in all reality, looking back to that, I mean, John Sherholtz made a great move. I mean, uh, you know, that, uh, but I had learned that in any situation, you give it your best. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I wasn't there because of myself. I was there for the Lord. And, and uh, you know, most of us, I have to understand that God uses us the most when we're going through difficult times. That's right. Uh, when we're when we're struggling and we're still showing showing what we're supposed to be showing, that is uh, that is when God uses us. And uh, you know that was just I guess for me, uh, as much as I didn't like it, I mean it was still like I said it was a great move by by John Sherholtz to bring him in. He was a spark that they needed in order to get things moving. But, uh, you know, for me, that was, that was just my upbringing. I mean, yeah. and that was my parents, that was Coach Worthington just telling me, you know, you, I'm not playing for the Atlanta Braves. I'm playing for an audience of one, and Boy, I good. had to reflect that. And, uh, you know, Christ says, he says in Matthew 5, 16, he, he doesn't say, let your light sh show shine whenever you're going great. He says, let your light show shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our Father in heaven. I mean, and that, that means in difficult times as well as bad times, I mean, good times. And, uh, you know, and so I guess I think a lot of it was just, you know, 
I'm thankful to my parents that they, they instructed me right. I'm thankful to God's word that showed me what was the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that, that that meant a lot to a lot of people. Well, I know as a as a Liberty guy who knew you from afar, and I knew your brother pretty well yeah. while we were up there and didn't know you as well. I'd see you when you were in and out. But as a Liberty guy, I know that it represented everything Coach Worthington ever taught because I, all I could think of was – He's just living out who he is. That's what I, and I'm just driving down the road. I'm just a, just a young youth pastor in Atlanta at this point, listening to this pod, listening to the radio broadcast, but I'll never forget it. And, you know, you, uh, you, you shared your, you shared your faith when you were on top and you showed your faith at that point when you were not on top, you were, you were coming on the tail end of your career, um, you end up getting traded or you end up going to the Astros for your final season. Was it, was it hard to retire from baseball or were you ready? You know, my, in reality, the reason that I retired for the most part was because my eight year old son, Michael sitting in his car seat, dad, it's time for you. He said, it's time for you to be home. And, Holy uh, cow. and so the reason that I, the reason I ended that year or twofold that along with, I thought, well, okay, if I can go up to Pittsburgh and be a low ticket item, help those young players, but I could still be home, you know, for the most part, I wouldn't have to make them move, you know, to go where I was going and so on and so forth. Then I, I would keep on playing. But, uh, but when, you know, obviously the slide was still too, great in the Pittsburgh mine. And there was no way that they were going to hire me at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, so my son at that point in time, I mean, I'm sure that I, I'm sure because I, I just came off a great season with asteroids. I mean, oh, I yeah, 40 something as a pinch hitter for the most part, uh, you know, was a good backup first baseman still. And I think, you know, the biggest reason was, is my son just said, dad, it's time for you to be home. And, and, uh, and, and again, the surgeries had taken a toll on me. Yeah. I mean, I, I was not the, the player that I ever wanted to be when I had those surgeries. I mean, I, I loved, I loved to be that first baseman that breathed down the, the, uh, uh, the nostrils of the pitcher that was trying to put a bunt down. And if he made a bad bunt, I had a double play. I loved to be that guy at first base that, you know, even as a, big old first baseman, I love to go first to third. And I was very, very aggressive on the base pass. But whenever, whenever these knee surgeries came up, I couldn't stop on a dime anymore. Mm. I mean, I, my leads had to be shorter because I couldn't push off mm. in order to get back to the bases. And so it took away all the, the things that I really enjoyed doing as far as a baseball player was concerned. And, um, you know, so I think that that played a little bit into retiring as well, because I just, I, I knew I couldn't be the person that I wanted to be. I could be a spot starter here and there, but I couldn't play a full season anymore. You, you've gotten to see baseball from so many vantage points growing up as a young high schooler in Pennsylvania, playing as a collegiate player at Liberty, going through the minors, having a great career in the pros, but you've had sons that have also yeah. played the game of baseball. What, what advice would you give aspiring young ball players 
kids that are growing up now, not the world, not the world you grew up in or I grew up in. I mean, it's a whole different, whole different world. Now these young athletes are growing up in what advice would you give them about their sports journey? Stay humble. Uh, the biggest thing that I see with you know so many of these kids, I mean, they've been pumped up so much from their communities as far as their talent is concerned that they go into their, their colleges uh, go into minor league baseball thinking, man, I, I'm just, I'm just everything. And they, they get humbled real quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my, my advice to most of these kids is recognize that when you leave high school, you're, you're getting going to college or minor league baseball. You're just getting to a, a place where you're starting the pyramid. I mean, and all the great ball players are starting to come together and you're going to find out that if you don't work at things, you're going to be left behind. I mean, so many of these kids, I mean, they get into the college scene and they think, man, I'm, I'm God's gift to mankind. And the next thing they realize is they got a shortstop that they're, they're competing against. They had a better range than them has a better arm than they do. They might hit a little bit better, but you know, and, and, you know, and so they get left behind because they haven't continued to work their, their uh, profession or what they're doing. And so my recommendation for them is when they go into a place, you know, as Tim Tebow used to say, you don't let anybody outwork you. Mm. You, 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 uh, you make sure that, I mean, you're the last person off the field at the end of the day, you're doing everything you can to make yourself better. And then as a Christian, understand that it's not about you. I mean, it's all about him. And uh, you play for an audience of one when things are good. You give it to him when things are bad. You give it to him and just say, Lord, I know at the end of the day, you have my back. I know that you have plans for me. And I know you're going to take me where you need me to go. Mm. You know, I was thinking about when you were talking about not out getting outworked. I remember being at Liberty my freshman year, and we had a transfer in, JUCO transfer named Tony Beasley. And I remember we would get done with practice down there on the field before we walked we, we walked the hike up back to dorm 18, that beautiful journey up that hill we made too many times in the rain and all kinds of other times. And I remember we're all packing up the head up. And I remember seeing a guy with a, a tire wrapped around his waist running that hill. And I was telling Tony this when he was a guest on the podcast. I never had a question whether he'd beat cancer because I watched Tony beat odds running up a hill when he didn't have to, when nobody was watching, we were all heading in for the night to head out with our, whatever we were going to do that evening. Tony was working and man, when you don't get out worked, it always pays dividends in every area. Gosh, of your life. You've also watched your young men be coached, right? And you've sat in the bleachers. I've been there at Liberty sitting in the bleachers on down the road from you watching your sons play. Um, what advice would you give to coaches? that are, that are molding and shaping young men and what young women's lives as a former player, as a dad, what advice would you give to these coaches? I would ask the coaches to uh, understand that these kids are for the first time getting out, you know, being independent. Uh, I would ask the coaches to recognize that encouragement goes a whole lot further than, than uh, telling them that they suck. Um, you know, their, their job as they are there as coach Worthington was, as, as we've been talking, he was, he, he, he helped those kids in 
he helped us in every facet of our lives. That's so good. I mean, and, um, you know, coaches today, they're so stuck on, you know, their win and loss, but they fail to understand that they have a, just like a teacher, a teacher has an opportunity to have a huge impact on, on each student that comes into their, their place. I mean, and it's your choice. And, and if a coach goes in there thinking that he's the, he's the, the thing, you know, he has his hair slicked back and he's, he's ready for the cameras and it's all about him, his win-loss records, he's going to miss the greatest opportunity mm -hmm. to have a huge impact on the, on the life of a kid. I mean, I, I can tell you that there's a lot of coaches that uh, have destroyed a lot of young athletes by the way that they uh, project themselves. And, um, and, and, and so I understand that, you know, just like I shared before, I understand that some of these kids need to be humbled. Uh, they think that they're everything and they need to be humbled, but you don't tell them that you, they suck. You don't mm. tell them that they, they will never be anything. Uh, you should take their scholarships away from them. Uh, you know, that's not the way you go about that mm. stuff. I mean, and, and to recognize it, like I said, you have a, you have an opportunity to have a huge impact on some of these kids that is going to affect them for the rest of their life. You know, I love what you and Michelle now have a ministry where you're traveling across the country, encouraging marriages, encouraging churches, youth groups, FCAs. Tell a little bit about what, what this season of life is mm -hmm. now for you and what you guys are doing as a ministry together. I think the biggest thing, Mike, is we're, you know, we're just open to whatever God has for us to do. I mean, I, you know, for the most part, it's just, and, and I will say this, if, if anyone desires i mean my wife is just full of grace she's full of wisdom uh 36 years living with me and the, the struggles that i put on her she is she is somebody that i mean if if any women's group or if you want us to talk about marriages you guys will be absolutely blessed uh by listening to my wife um you know i know that she gets scared you know, getting up in front because she doesn't do it a whole, whole lot. I mean, for the most part, it's been, been my opportunity, but my wife is unbelievable. Mm. And, uh, you know, so, you know, the, the, the great thing for us is, is, is when we do have a chance, it's, it's, it's just following in what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, going out and sharing the love of Jesus and letting everybody know I'm not perfect. Mike Lynch is, a, he's not perfect. I mean, we're all messed up individuals that Jesus Christ loved us no matter with, with all that going on, he still loved us. I mean, I, I you know, Romans 5, 8, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were messed up, he still died for us. I mean, and, and nobody is excluded from his kingdom if they just open their hearts to him. What's and, the biggest, what's the biggest prayer said that you want to be remembered for you know the, the the phrase Sid slid of course is always remembered but I have a feeling that's not what you want to have as how people remember Sid Bream what do you want what would you say what former teammates your your incredible sons and your daughter your grandchildren your wife your friends your brother your family how do you want them to remember Sid Bream Mike I would say this I mean uh 
I don't know if you remember Sumner Wimp that was at Liberty Baptist. <laughs> very see Sumner Wimp. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember him very well. And then and then Coach Worthington as well. You know, you call up Coach Worthington today, even, and he'll say, Sydney, you know what, <laughs> what I'm doing now? And I'd say, What's that, coach? He said, You know, all these telemarketers that call me up on the phone. I get on the phone and I say to them, Hey, you're calling me to talk to me about yours. I'm going to have a chance to talk to you about my faith. I mean, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, and I'll share this, and this is very, very difficult for me to share, but uh, I want everybody to experience Jesus Christ. I have a nephew, and I'm hoping God's grace extends to him, but back when he was eight years old, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Um, walked forward, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. But three summers ago in August, uh, Danny overdosed. No evidence of anything in, in Danny's life from the point of his salvation. And uh, he overdosed in my mom's bathroom, died. I know, I know. And to think that Danny, I mean, and again, I'm not judging Danny. I'm hoping God's grace extends to that day when he was saved at eight years old. But to think that Danny is separated from, from God. For the rest of his life, for eternity, it hurts. Mm. I don't want anybody to go through that. Mm. So, so I, I want people to know that when they see me, I'm hoping that they see Jesus. And uh, and I hope that they'll come to the place where they uh, recognize him as Lord and Savior. And they can go before him and they hear him say, well done. Come on in. What a joy to sit down with Sid. You think you know somebody, and then you start asking questions, and you find out, I only knew the surface of who they were. Man, I got off that call that day with Sid, and all I could think about was, God, thank you for creating people like that, people that you gave incredible abilities and talents and gifts to, that used them for your glory and used them for your kingdom. And... I'll tell you this about his family. That is the picture of his family. Just a heart for Jesus and a heart for others. What a blessing Sid is to the kingdom and how much more my life's been enriched by our time together. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope that it inspired you. And now when you hear Sid Bream being synonymous with, with his time here in Atlanta, it'll make you stick your shoulders back a little bit and puff your chest out and go, yeah, he was a good one. And he was one that did it for a, for a reason bigger than just the game of baseball. Thanks, Sid, for joining us because I am blessed as I know others were as well. When our next episode, which will release next week of the Lynchwood Leader podcast, we sit down with author, pastor, leader, Mr. Josh Gagnon. Josh has planted an incredible church in the Northeast, and God is using him in major, major ways for the kingdom. And he has a brand new book that's come out that I'm so excited 
to tell you about called It's Not Over. In fact, it's going to release on the day we're releasing this podcast. So I can't wait for you to spend that time together with me and Josh. It's going to be a fun one. But until we meet again, I hope that you'll go to iTunes, leave a review, share this with a friend. Man, it means the world that you listened in. And I pray that today you'll go out and live the life that he's called you to live and be the leader that he's called you to be. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.